Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Amy. And this is Small Town Not Small Minds. You were the last person on the earth not talking about the circle. Because I forbade that I will watch that show. But I, I don't understand why. You you haven't even tried it. Okay, the premise is like, hey, let's talk to a bunch of strangers. And it's like, hey, I could be catfishing you. You don't even know. Okay, for our listeners that are not up on the circle like Amy, it's basically a scripted reality TV show on Netflix that it is one of those ones that you're like, this sounds dumb, but as soon as you watch it, you just, you want more and more. So it's like maybe six or eight individuals all in their own isolated apartment and they can only communicate by like text message and they can only see each other's profiles. They can't see what they look like in real life. So people are like catfishing each other or real. And at the end, they're like trying to win a hundred grand. But like, my thing is, is like, will they ever meet them? They meet them at the end of the show. Is that what happens? Well, I can't give any spoilers. Oh. Is it wow. all I think about? Yes. I feel like, though, like, with the pandemic aside, do you think it would be as much of a hit? That's what I want to know. Well, this is the second season. It was, like, here's the thing. It was in the UK, and you know my dad wrote a porno, that podcast that we yes. all love? Yes. Alice from that, Alice Levine. Oh. She was in the very first season of The Circle in the UK. Okay, so and then it came that- to U.S., so was Fatboy Slim's son. So, like, I knew people were telling me to watch it for that. Yes. And then there's, like, uh, The Circle France, The Circle Brazil, which I've been watching in Espanol to practice Sharp my Spanish. You should get on board. Our very own podcast TikTok blew up because of this. I'm, like, I wish you guys could see my face because I feel like stupid shows. Like, I also did not at all touch or watch <sighs> Tiger King. But you like, watched Ugh. The Bachelor. No, I don't. I've, I've given that show up years ago after Ari's <sighs> season. 100% okay. after Ari's season. I was like, I can't. I, That's not do even not years ago because I was still friends with you when that happened. I know. <laughs> I remember and making you a dramatic post. Um, Love Island. That's Love Island? stupid. Okay, Love Island is fantastic. The circle, Amy, I'm telling you. But it's not. They don't in- interact with each other. They're yes, like, they hey. do. They yeah. do. Oh, it's so good. It's like, honestly. falsifying themselves. That's why I yeah, don't so, like that idea. Yeah, they can do that on Love Island, too. People are, it's scripted reality. is yeah, not real. Yeah, but at least real. you can see their physical body. And you're like, yeah. I'll go for that. <laughs> I like the circle because it's like it's like what we do now. It's like online dating. It's meeting up on Google Meets. It's literally they're in isolation and have to communicate with each other in creative ways. Well, if you say it's good, maybe, maybe <laughs> I'll consider trying it. But if you haven't checked out our TikTok at Small Cow Not Small Minds, you have to because Alex literally our most played video is the one oh, yeah. where she's pretending as a teacher in isolation that she is on the circle so, over a hundred thousand views and i've tried to make other ones their flops i had and, my moment in fame and 
And it's over now. <laughs> and that's what's up. We are really excited this week to have Dr. Paulina Johnson join us. Uh, Paulina is a friend, a childhood friend of mine from our hometown growing up. She attended school with me. And we're just excited to have her on to share her knowledge and her perspective as a professor of Indigenous Studies at Concordia. We are excited. So tune in. And that's What's Up. Paulina, Dr. J. Um, we were just saying how much I also I just know you as PJ because mm-hmm. growing up, you and I went to school uh, pretty much K kindergarten. Well, you're a year younger than me, kindergarten all the way to grade nine, and I always called you PJ. So now you're known as a distinguished doctor. Can you tell us a little bit more, uh, Paulina, about your title and your role right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. So as Amy just mentioned, I am Dr. Paulina Johnson. Uh, I have a Bachelor of Arts with (laughs) distinction uh, from the U of A at University of Alberta. I double majored in anthropology and history. And then I went on to Western University and got a master's in history. And I stayed there at Western again, actually, to do a PhD in anthropology. So I graduated in 2017, and now I'm actually an assistant professor of Indigenous Studies at Concordia University of Edmonton. And what we're doing there is actually building the Indigenous Studies program. Right now we have the minor coming out, and eventually we hope to have a major. Anything else that can like really, you know, bring in individuals to learn about Indigenous history, whether it be the philosophy, a lot of the worldviews but mainly it's just really to challenge a lot of the negative stereotypes and also the damage-centered narratives so that's really my role lately and it's been actually pretty good I think I have a lot of fun with my students especially students who you know they think they have a general idea and then they kind of just like I never knew that it's been pretty great actually that's awesome so Paulina um (laughs) I'm wondering, because you're quite young to be working, I think, in such like a high position in a university, which is incredible. How many people are in your department? It's definitely just me now. Yeah. Yes. I am the first assistant professor of Indigenous Studies at U. It's a huge, huge responsibility. It's powerful. And I think one of the things that I really like about Q is, you know, age aside, they really trust me. And I think that that's something that really stood out for me is, as you can tell, yeah, fairly young as as a doctor. They've already really supported me. They're like, you're the expert, you know best. Like, that's so cool, Paulina. Um, We were talking in our previous episode how... um, like when we started teaching, sometimes I I want to be taken seriously, but I'm so young in this. Um, so sometimes you like are kind of fighting to be like, I know what mm-hmm. I'm doing, but it sounds like this is like really a good role and you're being like really supported in that. And so the fact that I do get that within my role has allowed me to create these courses where I'm just like, this is what I want for my students. This is how I'm going to achieve you know, introducing them to Indigenous worlds, you know, the views, the language, the cultures, and just really the depth and beauty. And that's one of the things that's really important for me is before I can even challenge a stereotype, I want to present the people. 
Well, Pauline, I'm so excited that you could join us. Like I said, I know you're a busy woman and not just that, but like you get pulled in so many directions. I'm so fortunate to call you my friend because even as a teacher, I've used you on many terms as like a resource when it comes to culture, understanding certain aspects of First Nation, Inuit and Métis. But I also think I'm so lucky to be able to amplify your voice as an educator. And that's been like a really big part to being a social teacher for me. We're still presented with this, you know, wound that we haven't quite healed from. And it's our First Nations people. I really feel that. And right now, more than ever, I feel it's right on the forefront of having open discussions about this. Can you speak to, you know, your cultural identity as a Cree woman in modern Canada? Indigenous people have always been targeted. And when we think about the history of Canada too, a lot of what we know about Indigenous history has been very much misconception of the truth. And it's a falsified narrative that we really have to deconstruct and also decolonize. And to do that is we have to tell our own truths. We have to tell our own stories. Indigenous peoples have been dehumanized. And so when you allow us to speak for ourselves, you're giving us a sense of humanity that has been stripped away, not by our own doing, but by individuals who, you know, wanted this land, wanted this country and territory. And the best way to do that is to present us in, you know, a very, very dim light. It's about allowing us to tell you, hey, you and I were friends, Amy, right? But a lot of people, if they saw me, they're going to have this misconception about me until they find out who I am, you know, what I do. And I think one of the things too is like my age is that a lot of people don't assume that I'm that educated. And then like, they're like, what, you got three degrees? And I'm like, yeah, check it. For me, my identity is, you know, you cannot take me being Cree away by any means. It's in my blood, it's in my family, it's in my roots. You know, being from Musquatchies and the stereotypes in the news articles that are written about us sometimes are not the positive. Right. And our society really focuses on damage and issues, socioeconomic problems, dependency. And when you look into the history of how everything's set up in Canada, it's it kind of blows your mind when you start to get the truth out. And a lot of the things about telling the truth is you get a lot of people who resent you. And my role and my identity is being able to be that individual. And I get told a lot of the times by like my students or just fellow colleagues is that they've told me that I've done it in a way that it's very much approachable. And uh, they tell me I have a very soothing voice. So <laughs> <laughs> I think when you have that ability, and I think just being young too gives me that ability to say that this is still happening. To have that strong mental kind of, you know, focus and determination is, is so important. And that's why I really embody being Cree or a Nehu, you know, Nehu Square, as much as it kind of made me fearful of in, you know, my younger years, I very much more embrace it now, especially in, in this day and age. I am not only here for my current generation, but I think about the generations that'll come after me. And if I, you know, I do take on a lot of heat, a lot of racism, and a lot of challenges, a lot of things that make me want to give up. But I think about them and they're my motivation is if I can get, you know, one step closer, two step closer, then they don't have to, you know, do it by themselves. 
And I think about when I just became a doctor back in 2017, like I had all the elders who worked with me on my dissertation come to like, I had this like little celebration slash birthday party and like seeing my grandfather cry. And he's like, you're a doctor. I think that that's important because, you know, you went to residential school. He lived in the probably the harshest time, you know, during those eras. Not to say that, you know, my education is the only success that you can get as an Indigenous person, but I think that was kind of like a validation for him that, hey, she did it. She's my blood. Yeah. And that's important. I think when I read through some aspects of history, I'm like, you know, like what other, this is wild. And so when you can understand all these components, like the distrust and like you're coming in and you're reshaping that, like you're being a model for your community to be like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to share our story and let's make this the change. And that's the story that I think our students need to hear all the time. No, absolutely. And like to give you like an example, my grandfather, he's 82 this year. And so five years ago, he did his very first Sundance and he was like, Paulina, you're coming. He's just so proud. He's got his moccasins on, his ribbon shirt you see the pride in his face because like for the longest time we were denied being who we are. And so like, I remember the first time I spoke Cree to him, he looked at me and like, didn't say anything because growing up, he never really said, I love you. And I kind of like, as a kid was like, why doesn't he say, I love you when I say, I love you to him. Right. Like whatever grandpa, but you know, it was because, you know, he was denied that affection and he used to tell us, call me grandpa. But then like, just before I became a doctor and like I was telling him what I'm doing I'm like it's all about our language it's all about revitalization it's all about being who we were meant to be and he really I think after that felt okay being you know able to express who he is and I think about that you know to not to say that he didn't acknowledge him being native but it took him till he was you know 77 to say to me don't call me grandpa anymore call me Muslim you know, that's a little breakthrough. And that's some of the, like, you know, the intergenerational trauma that we're talking about is now that I say that I love him all the time, like he'll say, I love you back. But like, you know, for him, it was, I think that was a very healing moment for him. And mm-hmm. one that's very significant, especially when people are like, well, it obviously doesn't impact you that much. No, that little story means the world to me, right? Because it's him being able to be who he is, which is a cream man. But he grew up in that. Do any did any of your parents have to go through residential schools as well? My dad went through residential school for two years, and okay. then my mom was definitely part of like the child welfare. Um, she wasn't necessarily part of the sixty scoop, but she definitely went through that. So there's a lot of trauma that does exist within my parents. But also, one of the things that they really did when they got together was like, we're gonna make sure our house is healthy and happy and so like growing up there was no alcohol no smoking no drinking nothing and like my dad up until I was like 19 used to take me to all my fastball games right you know he would yeah you were an amazing pitcher (laughs) (laughs) super solid athlete I remember that and I think like my dad was like we were making a joke last week I never got to have any fun growing up he's like well look at where you are (laughs) (laughs) you're welcome PJ (laughs) So Alex, did you want to jump in and add anything? One thing I was thinking about was um, when I was in Germany, I went on like this walking tour and our tour guide was saying how Germany had done a really good job of acknowledging 
their past with like the Holocaust, uh, a lot of their like current narrative is acknowledging their past, being really open with it. Um, and there's like a lot of monuments, museums speaking about it in order that it doesn't rewrite itself. And I remember at that point thinking, we don't have this same feeling with our like wounds in our history. I feel like like when I looked at how Germany was like dealing with their like past of the Holocaust, it's I think we're like many steps behind that in Canada. I think you bring up a really good point. I'll let PJ jump in there. Dr. J. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things that uh, happens, especially in Canada, is a lot of people get really offended when you start to say like there's these open wounds or like no it's history's in the past the past is not present anymore get over it and I think I've been told that very much times in my life and I'm like well if I'm supposed to get over it and it's still occurring how can I get over it Mm -hmm. for Canada I feel like just having even a conversation about Indigenous peoples like people get on the edge real quick very tight and tense I think one of the things is just the truth the truth is that for Canada to exist you look at treaty and just how treaty had come about, you know, one of the things that is really key in my role is when I educate on treaty in my courses is that, hey, treaty isn't just a written agreement. It's actually saying that we're building these relationships together. What is Wagotuan? Wagotuan means like kinship. If I needed help, Amy and you, Alex, would come and help me. And if you needed help, I would come and help you as well. We became sisters. But we don't get that teaching. We're told one side is very dependent, always asking for more. No money amount is ever enough for them. And that's not even the case. And then you look at the funding of how Indigenous Affairs is really set up. It's, you know, the funding hasn't changed since the early 90s. But our population is the fastest growing demographic in Canada. So, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't shared with the rest of the general public, like getting uh, knowledge. And, you know, the federal government can create little info packs or do more, but they still let those those misconceptions persist. And a lot of it comes down to is like they have a role in those treaties and obligations, but they have really ignored it. They've created these myths about Canada. Unfortunately, a lot of those myths are created by themselves go to the military or become a lawyer you had to give up being Indian Mm -hmm. and you know this uh, this isn't something in the past this is like in the 1980s we wanted to go to school we'd have to give up our status if you want to and I think about too a lot of people don't realize (laughs) like a residential schools and I always I always like to share this history is in the 1920s you know the government of Canada knew it was a bad bad design did they stop no because it was until 2010 that they finally take it out of legislation. You know, almost 100 years, 90 years. And it's just, it, it's always mind boggling. And just when I tell my students these facts, they're just like, that can't be true. And I'm like, I wish it weren't true, but this is the reality. And so Canada has a lot of actually, you know. Hidden history, I yeah. would say. Like, and, and how they print it, like, it's so interesting. Everything you're speaking about, Paulina, I teach a social nine class and it's all about the federal government. And, you know, I think even how education approaches it is really key and vital into the real story. Because for me, I, part of my education degree took Indigenous studies. It was like, it was a part of it with U of A and, and everything I learned there 
was zero things I learned from my K to 12, which was really interesting. And I, I still think that our curriculum is absent of, of the things we're speaking about right now. I feel like ignorance is bliss. And when people put their blinders on for history or when they go to the, the inner city and see, you know, individuals who are homeless and they're of Aboriginal descent, you know, get a lot of these, these assumptions kind of flourish. And so when you're not given those right tools or just given the truth, it really stalls, you know, the ability to have equality, equity, and even diversity. And one of the things that I really, really want to like uh, point out is, Right now, especially after the Black Lives Matter movement came forward and having Indigenous Lives Matter, is there's all these workshops, you know, popping up. A lot of institutions are trying to do diversity and inclusion. And I just wanted to make a really strong note is if you're just doing that because everyone else is doing that, right? When you bring in Indigenous peoples into these places and you're not honest, you're harming them. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like a lot of individuals too, especially when not not just like Alberta's Teachers Association, but universities in general is that they don't even know themselves, I feel sometimes. And just to be honest is that it's a lot, a lot to share. And when I tell my class after the first semester, I'm like, this is not even anything that you will learn. I was like, you can take a whole major minor, but you will not know until you go firsthand into those communities. You will not know until, you know, you've read and given, given that time to to learn and expand your knowledge and have an open mind. We need I, more Dr. J's. Yes. yes. <laughs> we need more Dr. J's out there. I'm like, you are inspiring probably young students out there to go and do the same thing for their community, really. And like, that's what we do. We need to hear this because mm-hmm. even for me, you know, I, I don't know firsthand, you know, I have never had to live on a reservation. I've never had family members go through the 60s scoop or residential schools or like trauma of being stripped of your identity. So like you've, you have these firsthand stories and, and I think that's what we need to do is just keep soundboarding your story again and mm-hmm. again. So one of the things that I've been working on is actually a book. So that's really? Book. Yeah, no, I realize that if I can write this down, then I can share it with multiple people. Mm-hmm. And so actually I've been re- writing about my own experiences in academia and my grandmother's. So I don't know if you know this, but like my grandmother, she went to the University of Alberta in the 1980s. She got her bachelor's of education and then her master's. And then she was going to do her PhD and she was writing about residential school. And so her committee was like, hey, what you're writing about probably didn't happen to you because look at you you're successful you have seven children also props to my grandma to do all of this with seven children you know she did this and um she wrote about it and her phd and the committee was like no we can't give you your phd because what she wrote was not true wow yeah and so in 2008 when the trc came out truth and reconciliation commission they're like hey hi grace do you want your phd she's like fuck you You (laughs) (laughs) yeah no doubt i would be too like (laughs) right and she's like you should have gave it to me then because like imagine having that that knowledge in the 80s like people knew that this was happening and they were still denying it it just makes me kind of angry so that book is the gist of basically what she went through 
So this is like a legacy project for me. Mm -hmm. Sure. Tell her, tell her story, but also tell her truth. But like the discouragement, like there's just so many battles. Like when I hear like these stories, that's what I mean of your family members, of friends, of community members around you. It's predominantly white around here. And so the common thread when I have people who know that I'm running this community, I'm pretty passionate about helping other educators with this and promoting they come to me all the time with stories. So I can't imagine the stories that you get, but they come to me and they're always like, yeah, they want to talk about their hidden identity. And for some of them, just like you were speaking, like they were denied it. Their family mm -hmm. thought they were protecting them by denying their identity as a Métis person, as a Cree, as an Indigenous, like whatever, refused to even allow their kids to know this information. I'm even thinking like when we were talking about identity in our last episode, I didn't have to when we were talking about intersectionality like for me my own identity I don't have the same path that you had Paulina where I I can't imagine the trade-off being like okay do I want to like leave my family and be a lawyer or whatever or do I want to like have my identity like mm -hmm. it's a trade-off and um like that's just something that I have not ever had to even fathom in my life no I'm full out native you can tell in my hair in my looks like this woman is native and you know I I'm raised that you know I can't deny who I am when you speak about that trade-off like uh, one of the things that I I deal with still is a lot of people sometimes say like well you're too too intelligent now you're not one of us and I really hate that because you assume intelligence means you're white intelligence doesn't mean you're white if I'm not going to be that person being that voice, then I'm going to let someone who is not as trained, not as experienced, doesn't have that com community connection or family speak for us. So that's why I've really put myself in the position where I'm like, you know what, if you want to know more, I'm here. Mm -hmm. This is my role. This is my, my opportunity to give back. And one of the main things about just being an Indigenous scholar is that reciprocity, is what do I give back? When I was at McEwen as a sessional, I was teaching this one course, a 300 level, and I had two students pull me aside on the first day, and I'm like, back, and they're like, I've never had an Indigenous professor. How old are you? Where are you from? Like, what, what, who's your family? You know, just the fact that they were so amped to have me teach them, I think, and they're like, this is 2020, right, right? Like, they've never had an Indigenous professor before? Like, come on. But then there is, unfortunately, there's not a lot of us. And so being home in my own home territory, treaty area, you know, is so important to me. And so anyone who's listening, like Indigenous Métis, you know, a lot of the history about who we are has been repressed. You know, even my grandfather, he his Métis passed away and he, he struggled with being Indigenous because of one side of his family was like, if you're Native, you're bad. Uh, no, that's not the case anymore. You know, we're here. And one of the things too that is really important is, which is key, is that we assume that Indigenous peoples aren't able to adapt and change. That's not the case by any means. We are always changing, adapting. We're still rooted in tradition and ideology and beliefs and ecology, but we're not, you know, this static mold. We're very much dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, embrace who you are and 
honestly, like, I own that power today. You know, I got a lot of people who, as Amy has pointed out, reach out to me or, mm-hmm. you know, have older individuals who are like, hey, what does this mean in linguistic terminology? I'm like, this is what it is. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, just having that ability. And I think, I think that's so important. Thank you so much to Dr. Paulina Johnson and all Dr. Her- J. Yes, her wisdom, her wise words, her insight, her voice. We are so grateful for the time that she has given us and the knowledge and power. It's time for Jar of Questions. Okay, uh, what condiment would you do without in this world? And what condiment could you not live without? Ooh, well, we are coming into the <sighs> summer season also known as the condiment season. If you like <laughs> burgers and hot dogs. <laughs> oh my God. Um, 100% would not live without mustard. I love mustard. It's, it's so good on everything. I eat it on my eggs often. And I have, people are always like, that's so weird, but it's so good. I love mustard. But I actually am pretty open to like all condiments because you could call like balsamic vinegar a condiment. You could call like pesto a condiment. I'm pretty good with omitting ketchup or ranch. I'm like, that's like, ooh, my palate. And like, interesting. Do without ketchup, do without ketchup and ranch. Like, I'm not even just- like a huge ketchup lover. I, but I need it in my repertoire. See, like, if it went missing from my fridge, I don't think I would know this. Like, what I could do without is relish. I love it. Mm. But, like, I wouldn't necessarily notice that it's gone. Like, I need ketchup and mayonnaise to make a burger the best. And then when you have mustard and relish, it's, like, bonus. Ketchup is enhanced with mayo. Like, ketchup is better with mayo. But, like... You know you're a bad condiment when you taste better with another condiment. But I'm not going to be the first one for me to exonate. Like, there's a lot of other condiments that we can get rid of before we touch ketchup. Like what? Yeah. I don't really like all those, like, fruity vinaigrettes. Okay. I I understand that. That's not for everyone. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) are they better than ketchup? Probably. Probably. You know what I know that we're going to get into a war here because I I said take out ketchup and ranch. I feel like people are going to blow up our inbox being like burn Amy at the stake. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, you're just like, it's condiment season. And then you kicked the two <laughs> most popular condiments out. Yeah, I know. But they're only like super common here in Canada. But I was like, I know people who love ranch so much, they would bathe in ranch. Like, you are just memes. spouting facts. Like, do you know what I mean? ketchup is well liked other places um america okay but canada and america are like cousins the united kingdom not so much they don't dip their fries in ketchup they dip it in like mayo and mustard or or um vinegar or vinegar yeah see those and we should be taking note from them europeans eat like anyway i couldn't live without one